Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. I hope you had a great Thursday. I'm so glad you're with us. I'm so glad we're all still here. And I'm glad we've made it through almost another week. Don't forget what George Clinton always says, friends. It's always better by Thursday. There's a lot to celebrate. There's actually a lot of good news out there amidst all the Michigas and horror. And for the next three hours, we'll be trying to deliver it to you in as effective, compassionate, and amusing a package as possible. Let's put this day to bed together, shall we? We have a lot of ground to cover. First off, a short-term funding bill just breezed through the Senate. It's going to pass across Joe Biden's desk on its way to saving our government from a shutdown for, you know, another 75 days until we go through the, the yeah we're not there yet um also pro-palestine protesters shut down the bay bridge between oakland and san francisco for most of the morning using cars and linked chains to demand a ceasefire and an end to u.s military aid to israel meanwhile the world health organization and cdc report that all those folks who decided to stop getting vaccinations led to a 40 percent increase in deaths from the measles last year in 2022. You know, I I keep wanting to say Darwin was wrong, but they no, they keep proving Darwin was right. And as you may have heard already, Sean Combs, he used to be, well, he's Diddy now. Before that, he was P. Diddy. Before that, he was Puff Daddy. And before that, he was Puffy. And before that, he was known as the Quarrymen, I think. I'm not totally sure. But um, Sean Combs' former girlfriend, the singer and actor Cassie, you may have heard of, she has accused the billionaire music mogul of sexual assault and abuse and trafficking in a new court filing. And I got to tell you, brothers and sisters, it takes a lot to shock me at this old age. My God, my God, this suit managed to do it. I, I, I've never thought I'd say this, friends, but this is the time when, I, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but Diddy, maybe you should change your name again. Now's the time. Go from Diddy, just change your name to no, he did not, Diddy. Otherwise, they're going to put a question mark after your name. Hmm? Uh, we'll talk about that later on in the show. And by the way, when I mention the show, boy, we got a we, we, we got a really good one tonight. Uh, our good friends, Simon Moya-Smith and Julie Francella, will be here in the second hour for another edition of our Indigenous panel. I love that we're doing this every week. If you have any questions for Simon and Julie, this segment has become really popular really fast, and we haven't done too many calls when they've been joining us. But if you'd like to ask an indigenous person anything we'd love to have you join us in hour number two at 866-997-4748 866-997-GRIT i'm thrilled they're going to be with us jessica mason Peaklow of rewire news group is going to be here later on this hour to talk about various trials happening right now endangering the health well-being or body autonomy of women 
besides the ones that get all the ink. Chris Hauselt's our executive producer. Today is the 59th birthday of Dwight Gooden. It's also the birthday of the great Diana Krall. It is the birthday of two friends of this show, Martha Plimpton, who's done it a bunch of times, and uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Happy birthday to both of you very talented ladies. Uh, I think we're all set, right? Are we ready? Are we doing this? Let's do a show. Republicans promised that they and they alone could fix the border. Remember this last year? Remember in the midterms? They would fix the border. They were going to fight inflation. They're going to drain the swamp. They're going to fix everything. And now, I don't know if you saw the headlines in the Huffington Post, the least productive Congress since the Great Depression. Now, last month, Gallup had a poll showing that Congress's approval rating is at 13%. Let me say that again for you folks in the back. Our Congress has a 13% approval rating. Cannibals on bath salts eating your face is at 17%. And I want you to remember, the minimum salary for a Congress member is $172,000 per year. You pay for that. They get dynamite health benefits. Oh, that's socialism they don't want you to have. They're rolling around in it. They get office staff they don't have to pay for. They get travel expenses. And, and again, you're, you're paying for all of it. And our Congress has only written 21 laws this year. It's on pace to be the least productive gathering of lawmakers since back when Herbert Hoover was president. The Great Depression had just begun, and we were all still getting used to talking movies. This is the least effective gathering of Congress since they had color movies. When your main focus is smearing the president's son and his family, turns out you don't have a lot of time to do other stuff. And this Congress has managed to do the bare minimum. They raised the debt ceiling. They funded the government. And they've made an embarrassment of the entire institution with their ouster of a House speaker in the mid-session because they felt like it. Three weeks of a clown show trying to find a new one and picking quite a clown. And then, of course, they're all now threatening to beat each other up. I mean, Mark Wayne Mullen and a teamster. It's embarrassing. Only 21 bills have made it into law halfway into November in the 118th Congress, controlled by Republicans in the House and Democrats in the Senate. This is the slowest most do-nothing Congress when it comes to making laws since the 1931-32 Congress. Of the 21 laws that our Congress has made so far this year, one was just to keep the government open. And that, you know, expires tomorrow. Two of the laws they passed were to name local veteran affairs clinics after people. They had one bill that became a law to require the Treasury Department to mint a commemorative coin to mark the 250th anniversary of the U.S. Marine Corps. This is what they've done. You pay them $172,000 a year. I'm letting you know the laws they passed. They passed one law to nullify a local law passed by the City Council of Washington. And they spent your tax dollars nonstop investigating Hunter Biden and his freaking laptop over and over, over and over, thinking that this time they'll get a different result. Because it's not their money, my friends. It's your money. They can't govern but they will spend your money to perform for the Fox cameras and say really mean things about Joe Biden's drug addict son, because that's what the Christian folk want to hear. January, 15 rounds of voting to finally settle on Kevin McCarthy, who we all knew was going to get it, and he was awful. Then the entire spring, this Congress was just, how do we avoid the debt default? How do we avoid the debt default? Well, you do what you do when there's a Republican president, 18 times under Reagan, seven times under Bush, three times under Trump. You raise it but not when there's a Democratic president. No, then these $172,000 a year do-nothings put us through all this drama and then paralyze our Congress for three weeks after they fired 
McCarthy and Trump's little Johnson became the new speaker. So Huffington Post looked back in time to see how late in the year it took the previous Congresses to pass their first 21 public laws (laughs) using Congress's own website and compilations of laws passed in all of each Congress, the U.S. statutes at large. Joe Biden signed a bill requiring the Department of Veterans Affairs to allow easier access to claims information. That happened this week. That brought the total number of laws to 21 through Monday. Okay, it's November. It's taken Congress this long to get to 21 laws. Hasn't happened since the 72nd Congress, which only saw its 21st law to affix a bridge construction authorization in Michigan on February 5th, 1932. Congress didn't even start meeting until in 1931 until December. So they managed to get 21 laws passed in just three months. So that Congress, back during the Depression, was much more productive than this one. Our economic system is rigged. It's rigged in favor of corporate mega donors. You guys already know this. You listen to this channel. You're smart, moral people. And that makes it hard to live in this life, I know. But corporate profits broke so many records over the past few years. Corporate power has consolidated and consolidated. They raised the prices above inflation. Trump's tax cuts six years ago for corporations and the rich are still valid because... Mansion and Cinema blocked Joe Biden's campaign promises. That's right. Joe Biden's been in office three years now, but hasn't been able to do anything about raising taxes on the wealthiest. No tax loophole in the 4,000 pages of our codes were closed. We could have paid down the deficit faster. We could have made it a little bit harder for rich people to rip us off and brought in more revenue. But no, they work for the rich people who rip us off. And the rich people who rip us off hire these do-nothings in bad suits to say critical race theory. And transgender children are competing in sports, and that's not fair to your daughter. And brown people are coming over the border. And Hunter Biden's laptop. And they do this all day. So we have a Congress that does nothing. Republicans' goal has been nothing. Slow down progress and where you can reverse it. Roe v. Wade, Medicare, Medicaid, reverse it. They're fine with having the worst income disparity in the U.S. since the eve of the Great Depression. Oh, we were, they're going to impeach Biden. That's what they want to do. They want to reelect Trump. They want to cut taxes for the rich. They want to cut funding for Medicaid and and Medicare, but they'll call them entitlements, so you won't feel bad about that. They want to clear us out of NATO to make Putin happy. They want to ban being woke, whatever that is, this week. No two Republicans can agree what that word means. They're not mad about racism. They're mad about people who are mad about racism. They got rid of women's body autonomy. They want to gerrymander more. They want to have more voter ID laws. And they want to produce laws that make the federal government smaller and smaller and smaller, which is why they want the budget cuts. Because social programs that keep people out of poverty can't continue without the government funding them. So let's just de-staff these offices as much as we can and hope they lose the funding. Like, we should have a Congress getting us free health care. Like, like we, it shouldn't be a debate. All of our capitalist allies pay for their health care once a year when they pay their taxes. We should have free health care. We should have free daycare. We should have free higher education. People should not be terrified. America should not be a reality show called Food, Money, Rent, Pick Two. But that's what we are. Endless foreign aid to foreign countries. And of course, I'm all in favor of supporting Ukraine against what 
Putin's doing, but it's more funds for the military industrial complex. When they talk about raising money and putting more money into our military, they're not talking ever about getting the troops families off food stamps. And look at Joe Biden. Again, Joe Biden gets shit done. I will always say he's like a lesbian Scientologist. He has helped resolve several labor strikes. He's been the only president ever seen on a picket line ever. He's visited two active war zones in the last eight months, which is more than every other president combined. Navigating two hot wars. He certainly has helped us with (laughs) the inflation is going better in America than in any other G7 nations inflation recovering from covid Lower drug prices on a lot of prescriptions. <laughs> got, got a cap on insulin. I, I could go on. The PACT Act, the CHIPS Act. Decriminalize weed at the federal level. I mean, rewarding, I mean, forgiving billions and billions in student loan interest payments. You can buy hearing aids over the counter. Joe Biden gets shit done. Congress? No. Congress is there to not get shit done. And yet, there's still little bits of good news all over the place. I want to come here and yell and be a cynic, but I, 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 I can't. I'm a recovering cynic. I, you know, Biden had a pretty good meeting with Xi yesterday. Went pretty well. And when it comes to, here's a clip, two on the American economic recovery. Uh, Biden says these numbers, folks, they don't lie. More people in the United States are in the workforce today than any time in American history. Our unemployment has been under 4% for 21 straight months. Inflation has come down by 65 percent. More to do. We now have the lowest inflation of any lowest inflation rate of any advanced economy in the world. Meanwhile, median household wealth has grown by 37 percent in real terms since before the pandemic. I acknowledge there's a disconnect between the numbers and how people feel about their place in the world right now. We can deal with the second part as well. That's going to be the next 12 months of your life, sir, dealing with that second part. But more good news. The guy who attacked Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's husband, was convicted of federal assault and attempted kidnapping charges. So now's where Elon Musk and the rest of the right wing activists who lied and said it was a gay tryst. Now's where they all apologize in person, right? Folks, it costs nothing to be a decent person and, it, and, and you won't be sorry later. Get your facts before you smear people. Here's some more good news. Israel and Hamas appear to be near some kind of hostage deal. This is in the New York Times earlier today. And under this proposal, Hamas would release 50 women and children they abducted during their terrorist attacks on October 7th for roughly the same number of Palestinian women and children held in Israeli prisons. Now, this is being negotiated by Qatari, Egyptian, and American officials. It would involve a temporary ceasefire for a few days, a humanitarian pause. I know it's not much, but it's a beginning. It's something. It's getting 50 women and children who are hostages freed and 50 women and children who probably don't need to be in Israeli jails freed as well. It's a good start. Look, at this point, you know, I'll take any positive news we can get out of this region. And I'll take any positive news I can get out of a Starbucks. Thousands of Starbucks workers from 200 unionized U.S. stores went on strike today. And today was Red Cup Day, which last year was their highest single sales day of all time. But Starbucks Workers United, which represents 360 unionized stores and over 9,000 Starbucks employees, called today a Red Cup rebellion. I don't know if you tried to go to a Starbucks and had any surprises, but this is when they give you the reusable holiday cup with certain fancy drinks. They told Axios they expect customers interested in our reusable red cup will be able to participate in the giveaway as planned. 
and that the union action is a small subset of our U.S. stores. But Joe Biden, that's the kind of picket line you want to be seen on, just putting it out there. And by the way, another little bit of good news, the lights will stay on. Congress finally approved yesterday, last night while we were on the air, to a temporary government funding package that pushes this confrontation over the budget, well, down the road another 75 days into the new year. So I'll see you here again, friends, at the end of winter. But this spending package now is going to keep government funding at the current levels for roughly two more months while they negotiate a long-term package. In other words, Mike Johnson probably has two more months to make the right-wing caucus like him. And finally, uh, the big news, I don't mean to bury the lead, we will be talking throughout the show about the Diddy case because it's pretty, it's, oh boy, it's shocking. But uh, I don't know if you heard, George Santos might be the only guy who had a worse day than Diddy. The House Ethics Committee released their report, and boy, oh boy, it's explosive. They, it's 55 pages. After months and months of investigating the congressman from Long Island, he now faces 23 federal criminal charges, including identity theft, credit card fraud, and filing fraudulent campaign finance reports. Y- y- you kind of knew it wasn't going to turn out well, right? They voted to expel him from the House a couple weeks ago, and our friend Jamie Raskin said, no, he deserves due process. Well, he's, uh, he's, he's had it now. The due process is in. And the investigators said they have gotten together substantial evidence of wrongdoing on his behalf, including filing false and incomplete reports with the FEC and the use, this is my favorite, the use of campaign funds for personal purposes. Like what, you might ask? Well, I'm glad you did. Like Botox treatments and trips to Atlantic City with his husband. $50,000 of donor money that was supposed to go for political purposes was transferred to his personal account, and he used it to shop at Sephora and Hermes and OnlyFans sites. That's right. If you donated to George Santos, your money went for him to watch porn. And that's good. Because if you donated to George Santos, uh, you deserve to feel like a jerk-off. $20,000 of his 2022 campaign funds were moved to his personal business bank account, where he used some of it to pay for his rent, and about $6,000 he used to buy things from designer stores and to uh, go to a casino. Yeah. They're going to refer all evidence to the Department of Justice for their ongoing investigation, and they recommend the House condemn him. Ken Buck... Yeah, that Ken Buck, the right winger, he told Andrea Mitchell today that Santos has now gotten his due process through the House Ethics Committee and he should resign. And if he doesn't resign by Thanksgiving, he thinks another expulsion resolution will be voted on in the House. I don't know what to say other than Democrats. I'd I'd keep him there. Let him be the face of this Republican Party and use George Santos's ugly face to get Democrats elected by reminding people how awful this do-nothing Republican Congress is paid to be. George Santos is a gay immigrant for Donald Trump. And that's proof that God loves us and wants us to laugh. We want to know what you guys think. We're at 866-997-4748. 866-997-GRIT. We'll be right back in just a moment with Jessica mason Piclo and your calls. This is Progress After Dark, and I'm so glad you're with us. Don't go away. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. 
Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. .edu slash podcast. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. This is Sirius XM Progress. I'm John saying Thank you for being with us. Uh, this just in, Congressman Dan Goldman, he just announced uh, after the George Santos ethics report was released, he said, upon returning to Washington following the Thanksgiving break, I intend to file a motion to expel George Santos from Congress once and for all. <laughs> yeah, Dan, you, you and 20 million other congressmen. I'm telling you, Democrats, keep George Santos there. You want him on that wall. You need him on that wall. Every Republican should have to defend him all next year during the I, I look, I, I'm not here to tell you how to do your job. But come on, use this guy. Don't get rid of him now when he can still be useful, for God's sakes. Now, let's let's shift things a little bit here. The Supreme Court just heard arguments in one of the most important gun cases they've seen in decades. And at stake is the question of whether people who are under domestic abuse restraining orders maybe, possibly, ought to be restricted somewhat from owning guns. They are trying to decide whether or not men who abuse women under domestic violence restraining orders have a constitutional right to still own lots of machines that kill people in the case of United States versus Rahimi. Uh, If the SCOTUS affirms the fifth court's decision, it's going to allow domestic abusers to possess firearms and put the lives of their victims and survivors at risk. You know, Guy shit. So I'm so pleased to welcome back to the show the great Jessica Mason Peaklo, Senior Vice President and Executive Editor for Rewire News Group. She's also the co-host of one of the best podcasts you guys can listen to. I'm going to say it again. Boom Lawyered. It's her with Imani Gandhi, and it's fantastic. Rewire News Group is a 501c3 nonprofit media org and the only national publication exclusively dedicated to reporting on reproductive and sexual health, rights, and justice. Jessica Hegemami, welcome back to SiriusXM. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. I love being on your show. 
I love having you on the show. I, I, I got to tell you, there's a lot to unpack. I, there's a few cases I want to <laughs> ask you about, but the first one being U.S. versus Rahimi, because this and the Rahimi in question is a dude named Zaki Rahimi, uh, who's, mm-hmm. I guess, the hero of this story. He's a small time dealer and he's got a lot of firearm convictions, including several shootings. He once shot a his friend's credit card once got declined at a fast food restaurant and he shot a gun into the air. He's 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 that kind of guy. And it it seems like before he went to jail, he was subject to a domestic violence restraining order after an incident in 2019. He attacked his partner in a car park, told her he wanted to take away their child, and he dragged her into a car before threatening her with a gun. When he noticed a bystander had seen this, he grabbed a firearm from his car and opened fire against the bystander. Now, um, mm-hmm. I believe under the 1994 law, those subject to such restrictions are prohibited from owning firearms. But this is the guy the NRA has decided is their new hero, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, the the intro that you gave is is a pretty good description. This is a trigger happy guy. And uh, the Supreme Court and conservative and the conservative conservative legal movement may absolutely let him usher in a fresh new wave of arms expansion in this country. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Washington Mm -hmm. Post had a really um, moving and powerful uh, multimedia piece uh, today on the damage that AR-15s do, for example. And one of the things that we know about guns and domestic uh, abuse and and, um, intimate partner violence is that, you know, Solicitor General uh, Preligar said it herself in oral arguments, the difference between a battered woman and a dead woman is the presence of a gun in the house. And that's really, truly what's at stake in this case. I mean, there are other conditions where we, the people, have decided it's good for certain kinds of guys to not have access to firearms, right? I mean, that they should domestic abusers be allowed to arm themselves? That's the question right here. And I, I, I'm really wondering what the... <laughs> what the NRA all-star squad fighting for this looks like. I mean, it doesn't really seem like a very popular thing to fight for, but that's the NRA. And it really is. And it's, uh, you know, it's enabled by the Roberts court in particular with the Bruin decision um, and really just this wild reading of second amendment rights. That's now coming um, to play with this, um, you know, crocked up originalism that is not really anything of substance except for an excuse to enshrine into law the expanded rights of a very select group of people. That select group of people just happens to be largely white, upper middle class men, um, for example. So this is a case that really, truly hits at the hypocrisy of originalism. And you heard that in the oral arguments because, you you know, the arguments that conservatives are making is that, like, look, the Second Amendment is, is absolute and really, truly, we, you know, the amount of restrictions that we can put on it we needs to be viewed through the originalist lens. And Solicitor General Prelegar, who has been doing fantastic advocacy on behalf of the Biden administration and the American people at the Supreme Court, I really she really just doesn't get a lot of attention or flowers. And, and she's doing phenomenal work in oral arguments. She just painted this very clearly. She said, look, we can talk about originalism, but originalism depends on us agreeing that only certain people were considered basically people at the time. And when we're doing originalism, 
Let's do it with our full chest. At the time, men Thank could you. own their wives. Men could own their children. Men could own other people and buy and sell them and break up families as much as they wanted to. Yep. And the founders would have been okay and were okay with those folks having firearms. But that doesn't mean that in the year 2023, with our sensibilities now that we're shackled to that worldview or if you are going to shackle it to a supreme court then do it out in the open like really actually put your money where your originalist position is and it may have been that calling the bluff like that really was was key because you know i mean the usual suspects were very into the arguments um on behalf of the second amendment you know alito was very excited about the possibility of expanding gun rights but it did not sound like all of the conservatives on the court during oral arguments at least wanted to go that far and so i think that there's an advocacy lesson there, which is, you know, take it to him and call him out on it. I completely agree. And I'm glad you mentioned the solicitor general, because I think she's been doing great. I mean, she she was presenting the case uh, a couple days ago and she told the courtroom that the stats we know women living in a home with an armed domestic abuser are five times more likely to be murdered. And she talked Mm -hmm. about the court's verdict in 2014 uh, in Castleman, where the court said the only difference between a battered woman and a dead woman is the presence of a gun, which you quoted earlier. So my understanding is that when the cops raided this guy's home a couple years ago for the shootings he was accused of, they they found a rifle and the pistol and the federal jury indicted him. But then last year... When the court expanded gun rights, uh, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, they ruled that the government has to point to historical tradition when defending laws related to the Second Amendment. This sounds like a bullshit thing that white guys made up to do whatever they want. Yeah, it's and it's the same framework that the Supreme Court used to overturn Roe versus Wade in, in the Dobbs case. And it will come back again and again. It was the same framework that the court went to when they were undermining affirmative action in the students for fair admission cases, right? All of this is about, you know, codifying white grievance into constitutional law at this point. And that's really, truly what's going on there. And, you know, I mean, I think it's really important that this case is being argued around the same time that a new batch of maternal mortality statistics are coming out, because one of the leading causes of death of pregnant women is intimate partner violence. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's written all over this case. I, you know, I have to admit, mm-hmm. I, I haven't been following it that much, but it was earlier this year, the, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in Louisiana. They're the right wing ones, right? They, they ruled mm-hmm. that the law keeping this guy Rahimi from owning a gun was unconstitutional. W- what is his defense mm-hmm. like? What, what is Rahimi's lawyer saying and how are they arguing that men who beat up women should be allowed to have guns in the house? I mean, they weren't necessarily, in my opinion, doing their favor- their client a whole lot of favors during the oral arguments. I mean, they were really championing him as kind of a constitutional savior while also trying to dance around his very awful and violent history. Right. Like it's it's yeah. a bizarre place as an advocate to be in. And and I, I like I said, I think that between that, I don't know, um, less than stellar advocacy on the part of his attorneys and really Solicitor General Prelegard just doing 
a phenomenal job in tying the conservatives to their previous positions, there's there's actually a little bit of hope in this case. And it might not even be doctrinal hope. It could just be that the pressure is on the court so much right now that Mm -hmm. Roberts isn't going to, to the extent that he can, let them go as out of bounds as maybe many of the conservatives on the court want to and are willing to go. Any guesses from you how this might play out? Do you get any vibe off of this? I mean, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I am I'm moderately hopeful that the Supreme Court will do the right thing here in terms of not issuing a ruling that says basically that that laws like the one at issue here in Rahimi that prevent folks with you know convictions of IPV and, and domestic violence can't have firearms, that reasonable restrictions on firearms in the cases in particular around domestic violence can stand to live another day. What the problem is, though, is the framework that we have under originalism right now. The only limiting principle is the conservative justices imagination like they will twist that (laughs) however they want. And I you know, and it only takes five votes. So this is really going to be whether or not Roberts can wrangle in the conservative wing. I mean, I can't imagine Amy Coney Barrett signing on to this opinion. I mean, I can, but like I can't in any sort of like genuine, authentic, you're a human being, look at the world around you kind of right. Way, right. So and I do hope that the political pressure that's on the court, that the court seems to be wielding is going to affect some of what we see the court doing, because we know that that plays. a. I mean, it does. It plays a fact. We, sure. We see but- it. As long as we're talking about the right wing Fifth Circuit, can I can I ask you about this case, Deandra v. Becerra, which is kind of horrifying as well. Now, you covered this on your podcast, but this is a story where Mm -hmm. a Christian father, I'm sorry, a father who claims he's Christian (laughs) doesn't want his three daughters to be able to get contraception without his permission which, by the way, Bible doesn't say anything about that ever at all. Not, uh, Bible's not against birth control, so I use the Christian word lightly. Uh, and he's trying to challenge Title X on that basis. This is this yeah. is a real conceivable shot against birth control, which Clarence Thomas it has is. already said is one of the long-term goals, isn't it? This is a case that's been flying under the radar because so much has been happening, quite frankly. But it's a really, really big deal. And so... Um, It's a legal fight cooked up by Jonathan Mitchell. That name may sound familiar to folks listening to the show. He is an attorney out of Texas who was the brains behind Texas's SB8, that six-week ban with the uh, bounty hunter provision on it that functionally overturned Roe versus Wade before the Dobbs decision. His latest attack is on Title X and um, minors' access to contraception. And it goes like this. Title X is one of the most successful public health programs that we have ever had in this country in terms of creating access to affordable, effective, preventative care in all sorts of forms, including uh, contraception. And it has at its core a mandate that says that access um, cannot be interfered with um, in terms of minors' access. Like it is a federal statutory principle. And Jonathan Mitchell says, well, but Texas Family Code 
holds that parents have this basically unilateral right to control the upbringing of their children. And that includes, in this case, the unilateral right to block and prevent access to any sexual health information, including possibly contraception. Mm-hmm. And the Fifth Circuit, Kyle Duncan, in in the lead of this, a Trump appointee, former ADF attorney, Alliance Defending Freedom, is ready to bite on this argument. So effectively, we have in this case, the Fifth Circuit considering the idea that the Texas Family Code is super can supersede Title Ten, can supersede right. federal law in the case of a parent's religious rights asserted against their child, never mind the minor's own independent constitutional right to privacy and to bodily autonomy that still exists despite Rose being overturned. Does it exist? Does and it legally exist? And does it li- I'm sorry, but does, but does the young people's self-determination and body autonomy legally exist in Texas? I mean, they have parental consent requirement for birth control. And, and, and so I know right. this is how teens have used Title 10 to get like low cost birth control without the parental consent. But I mean, I'm, I'm asking it seriously as a dumb guy. Do they do they legally have body autonomy in Texas? I mean, legally, um, as much as they do in any other state, as if the federal constitution means anything. Right. Yeah, that's it. So Texas the has the ability to, to to restrict it. And and that's really where we're at. Right. It's. What they're trying to do is basically wipe out the ability of Title X to provide access to contraception for minors without parental consent. And not just in Texas, but but across the country. And one of the things that we know about the anti-choice movement in particular is it always starts most of its campaigns on the most vulnerable. And minors are very much the most vulnerable when we're talking about access to sexual and reproductive health. They have the most barriers to cross always. And if they can block it in Texas, they can block it nationwide. And this is happening the same time that conservatives in the House caucus are were trying to completely defund Title X family planning programs and divert that money into religiously affiliated organizations yep. like so-called yep. crisis pregnancy centers. Oh. I mean, this is all part and parcel of the same you know, same same movement. And so we could very well see a question about whether or not parents' rights Trump the Constitution in very limited circumstances, right? I mean, it's it's sure, bananas, yeah. and of I course, mean, it's, it's only crazy. certain it's only certain parental rights, right? It's not like the, they're concerned about the rights of the parents of trans kids in Texas who are trying to get their kids healthcare, for example. Uh-huh. Like the hypocrisy is just so thick. It It is. And I, I guess it comes down to and we have to acknowledge, you know, young people very often will involve parents in, in decisions like this. Yeah. But, but for so many young people, parental involvement can be a, a feel like a death sentence. I mean, it can be just a, a barrier that people can't rise above. Every teenager's situation is different. But it seems like it comes down to a question of do teenagers have a right to birth control? If they're poor, if they're Christian, mm-hmm. I mean, do do teens have a right to control their own reproductive future or do their parents have that right? I mean, it's a Absolutely. it's an amazing debate. And what's terrifying about this case in the Fifth Circuit is that it's not even law. It's just all vibes. Right. right. So what that's what we've seen more and more from the conservative legal movement is it's not. I mean, it used to be that we would have debates with the conservative legal movement. And I never agreed with them on anything. But we, there were principles that on either side of, of this we were we were working on. And and there was an understanding that the law meant something. That's why we were mm-hmm. all in it. The law 
is irrelevant for the conservative legal movement. During oral arguments in the DeAnda case, the judges on the Fifth Circuit were like, well, I don't know. We'll just assume that the children are minors. I mean, they're they're just like playing around, not even doing their jobs to make sure that the factual record is correct, that the framework that they're operating is in. And so that's how you know it's a political campaign that's that's being run through the federal courts. Yes. And masquerading as a religious campaign. I just want to always point that out because the Bible does not ever forbid birth control for anyone. And Jesus doesn't technically come out against premarital sex. I I, this is my big issue when people try to make these culture war male white control issues Mm -hmm. somehow have some veneer of piety uh, when in reality. It's just the same old bullshit of mediocre men trying to control people. Um, And speaking of controlling people, while I have you here, Jessica, any thoughts on the Supreme Court's exciting new self-governance plans? I, I, I kind of am having a hard time taking this seriously, but their code of ethics they have, which is unenforceable and there are no penalties if it's ignored. It's sort of like they're putting up a new list of swimming rules on a pool that has no lifeguards. Is it just theater? Is it just them kicking the can down the road? Or is it darker? Because I think some of this is Alito just mocking decency. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a fair read of Alito for sure. Um, the the we know that Alito in particular, and so we have to assume some of his other colleagues as well, um, don't believe that the court is governable by us. They don't believe that they have to answer to anybody once they're appointed. And anytime there's been political pressure, there's been questions about ethics and um, wrongdoing on the court. Uh, Justice Alito, in particular has come out extra, extra salty in response um, to it. And this is, I mean, if anybody thinks that the Supreme Court is going to seriously, under this leadership, allow itself to be regulated in any substantive and meaningful way, please, like, go take a walk, get a cup of coffee, like, take a moment, because that's not happening These people fully believe that they are above the law. I mean, you don't houses, RVs, trips like the corruption is wild. It's the stuff that would make like, you know, the old school Vatican blush. Like, seriously, it's it's bananas to me. And the only oversight, the only thing. But the only oversight oh, comes from on. Congress, where, where if yeah. two thirds of a majority and Congress were the ones to legalize bribery in the first place. I mean, yeah. what would Clarence Thomas have to do? How many babies would he have to eat to get two thirds of the Senate to vote to get rid of him? I mean, it, it, precisely. It's not going to happen. It's absolutely not going to happen. And also because they are all such institutionalists to their core. So they can't possibly believe that their golf buddy, John Roberts, is as corrupt as he is. Exactly. Oh, man, it's going to be an interesting year. Jessica, you are the best at what you do, and I'm so honored every time you come to join us. Thank you for teaching us about DeAnda versus Becerra, which I'm very angry about, and I'm kind of terrified about U.S. versus Rahimi. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you and, and keep up with all your work? I'm still on all of the social platforms. I haven't given them up. Um, I'm Hegemami there. And you mentioned my podcast with Imani Gandhi, Boom Lawyered, um, which is a delight. And uh, we are eight seasons uh, and running, which is kind of wild when you think that we talk about the law and um, the Supreme Court and all sorts of stuff. But we love it. Um, And you can find that where you get your where you find any of your podcasts. And then, you know, hop on over to rewirednewsgroup.com. We've got some great stuff going on. We're about to 
um, published a deep dive. Garnet Henderson, our wonderful uh, platform reporter, uh, she just got back from a long reporting trip in Idaho, um, looking at really the consequences of the Dobbs decision, the resurgence of white supremacy there, the fear of being pregnant as a like cultural reality. And we've got some great stuff coming out because really that's a canary in the coal mine moment for us as a as a country. Can't wait. Thank you for everything Rewire News Group does. And thank you for the Boom Lawyer podcast. It is dynamite. Have a great evening, thank Jessica. You. Thanks for joining us. We got to take a quick one, but we will be back with your calls in just a moment at 866-997-4748. This is Progress. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. I am so pleased that Simon Moya-Smith and Julie Franchella are back. We have done a lot of segments on this show, but few of them have become as popular as fast as what these two do. Simon is, of course, an Oglala Lakota and Chicano journalist. He's a contributing writer at NBC News, and you can read his thoughts on issues at the intersection of Native American heritage and modern politics. He's the author of the upcoming book, Your Spirit Animal is a Jackass, and he recently profiled actress Paulina Alexis of the Peabody award-winning FX series Reservation Dogs for the Cut. Simon, welcome back. Thanks for having me, man. Thank you for being had. I'm also delighted to welcome back Julie Franchella, Brave Deer Woman. Uh, she's an artist and an illustrator, and she is Ojibwe, a proud citizen of the Abachawana First Nations. And she has worked as a, a, a counselor for people and children suffering from trauma. She's a wonderful artist as well and represented by the Charlotte Sheedy Literary Agency of New York. Julie, welcome back. It's great to have you. Hi, thank you so much for having us. Before we even dive into it, uh, let me ask the big question. Julie, you saw Killers of the Flower Moon. What did you think? What is your review of uh, Martin Scorsese's opus? I saw the film. I was immersed in the film. Um, I, I can't say enough about the actors and all of their portrayals. Um, one one thing I think is I kind of agree that it should have been more from the perspective of Molly or the indigenous uh, perspective, because it was uh, quite heavy from the perspective of, you know, the non-indigenous characters. Yeah. But it, I mean, it was devastating. I, I mean, I cried throughout the, uh, Simon, you mentioned the first 15 minutes and that just mm -hmm. broke my heart when they're, you know, yeah. I don't want to give anything away, but you're right. But it was just a beautiful, devastating film. And, I think it's so necessary for people to see, you know, sort of that depiction of what was going on in, you know, the this reign of terror. And I, I'm yeah. just grateful to Martin Scorsese for even considering making it. I think it was a labor of love for him. It was. And, you know, just it was devastating. Simon, I, I got to see the film, and uh, yes, I loved it, oh, but nice. I thought a lot about, about what you said. I, I really must agree. I thought that... Because, I don't want to give away too much about the film, but because it's told from the point of view of the DiCaprio character, he sort of goes mm -hmm. from being the 
protagonist to being sort of the anti-hero to sort of you know being a bit yeah. of a, a a very ambiguous villain and it just seemed mm-hmm. the entire time that Lily Gladstone's character needed to be the main protagonist, and and it would have worked much better on a storytelling level if it had been told primarily from her point of view. Because DiCaprio, who's very good in the movie, you you think you're identifying with him, and then as he becomes worse and worse, you realize that this is more of a, a noir tragedy of a guy who's a fuck up just ruining everything, which is what the yeah, Irishman is I... about. But right, right, and I hope people who haven't seen it or those who have seen the film will understand in reality, Robert De Niro's character and Leo DiCaprio's character were villains. These were villains in real life. But because it's Hollywood and they have, you know, Hollywood has his fingerprints all over it. You know, there is that level of sympathy for Leonardo DiCaprio. And you don't really see Robert De Niro as as a real villain in, in what you would, you know, associate with in cinema. But these were really bad people. Um, And I also agree that I think at the beginning of the movie, there needed to be a disclaimer for natives, for indigenous people, because a lot of us uh, consider it more of a horror and it is very triggering. A lot of the imagery is extremely triggering, especially with the brutality, the murder of the women in the in the film. Um, And it coincides with murdered and missing indigenous women. So there there really needed to be a trigger warning before the film started specifically for indigenous peoples. It's a great, it's yeah, a great point. Yeah, I found the, that, um, uh, just the visuals of, you know, especially the, the actress who played Anna, uh, I won't give too much away, but, um, that I found really, really graphic and difficult to watch. I think I actually looked away a few times during that. And I agree, Simon, that, you know, I think, and, you know, Lily Gladstone did, did come out after the strike was over the SAG after strike and she was giving warnings and she was actually giving phone numbers for people to call if they were feeling, you know, um, because that trauma stays, it doesn't, it stays in the body. It doesn't, you know, go anywhere until you actually mm-hmm. process it and deal with it. So I appreciated yeah. that she did that. It's, it's not often I see a film that's a 100 year old period Western that is this timely most of the issues discussed here from stolen wealth to disappearing native women are painfully Mm -hmm. prevalent right now and um it's one of the reasons i'm grateful for you guys joining this segment because i'm just tired of mainstream media not covering it and it's thank you i think one of the things people miss is there's a term called rent a tribe rent a tribe is when corporations take on indigenous uh tribes and nations as partners to circumvent certain laws and that's what a lot of what they did back then by marrying into the tribe that's right that's sort of what this movie's about too yeah yeah Yeah. and and de niro by the way i I thought de niro was amazing i mean maybe the greatest villain role he's ever had and just uh, a, a great performance. Lily Gladstone's going to get an Oscar nomination to too for this. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. I'm sorry, Julie, go ahead. No, I was going to say, uh, you know, about uh, De Niro, his portrayal was just phenomenal. His acting was phenomenal. But I think, too, you know, that's, that is the reality that our villains in our worlds, they are nuanced. You know, they are human beings. I think if we if we, and I don't know, I'm assuming that they paid a lot of attention to what these people were like in real life is my guess. So I would imagine mm-hmm. that he probably was, you know, De Niro, this uncle, you know, very grandfather-like character, yeah. all the while, you know, sort of doing these horrendous things. And that, you know, that is humanity, you know, oftentimes, you know, it's people want to 
people in these boxes that, you know, well, you know, he's a monster, so he's not going to behave like, you know, somebody who's caring. And so I think it, I think they did a, a, a fair job in showing that, you know, people are human and, you know, they can make terrible, you know, decisions that hurt other people. And I think that was portrayed with the, with these villains, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'd like to to bring it more currently because there's a story that actually made national headlines. And to me, the story of what happened about this elder having his hair cut off in this Colorado medical Mm -hmm. facility, uh, as awful a story as it is. And I want to ask you guys about it. To me, the real story is that mainstream media picked it up. Like I read this on the Daily Beast and I couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. But can you set up, Julie, what happened? This was an an older man um, who was a a Glala Lakota and he went into the UC Health in Aurora, Colorado, I believe. Yes. His name is Janice, Arthur Janice. And um, he was in a facility, medical facility. And I, I believe when his family came to see him, his long waist-length hair was cut. And I, I guess there's some um, indication that they he did not give permission for them to cut his hair. And that may mm-hmm. seem like a small thing for people, but you know, for Indigenous people, especially an elder who probably is very traditional, it is a just a uh, disrespect, and it's a very, very... Um, difficult thing for someone to experience when they go into a facility and you know i believe there was no consent given now simon you were talking earlier to me about um there was some discrepancy between um i think he went from a different facility to another facility was there mm-hmm. well he was still yeah he was still within the university of colorado health you know he went from different facilities facilities right. but um arthur janis is one of my elders he's from the american indian movement back when we had the wounded knee occupation Right. Wow. So he's a very, very respected elder, and his hair went down to his wa- his waist. And, and that for decades, right? Learned. He's had hair. De- he's had hair past his waist for decades. decades. Yeah, decades. And because he's a very traditional uh, man, and he would be considered an elder and a warrior. And remember, there's a difference between uh, elders and olders. Elder is somebody who's earned the title. Elder is somebody who has sacrificed for the community, has gone and fought pipelines, who has done everything they can for the community. And older is somebody who just sat back and watched, didn't do shit. So he is a warrior. And so what happened was is he was on a um, just a video chat with his sister and his sister just kind of looked around and didn't see his braids and they had cut them off at some point and they're not saying when they're not saying who and they're asking for a court order if they if the American Indian movement of Colorado wants the videos and I think what is also very frightening for us as indigenous people is our hair is still very expensive and uh, desired on the black market. So and if somebody, yeah, so if somebody is um, unscrupulous enough to come with, say, that story that you're mentioning right on the Daily Beast and go, look, I have his hair. Boom. Somebody could buy it for an exorbitant amount of money. But you also have to remember as traditional people. And I've heard this about other cultures as well. You take your hair out of your comb before you give it to somebody you throw away or you burn your fingernail clippings because you don't want any bad medicine done with you so somebody Mm -hmm. has his hair or they just threw it away but we're not getting any answers from the university of colorado health um my i was called 
uh, in the early mornings by Lynn Eaglefeather, who is in Denver, Colorado. I'm from Denver, Colorado. And her son was murdered by the Denver police um, many years ago. Paul Castaway shot and killed. So she has her pulse on everything that's happening in the community. And she called me and she was like, we got to get this out there. What are we going to do? How do we get this on mainstream news? And luckily, of course, the Daily Beast picked it up. But, you know, Native News Online picked it up. But I was specifically asked to talk about it here as well. Everybody in Indian country knows that this is the only segment right now on Sirius XM with two indigenous people pushing back. So uh, I think you I think what uh, what happened to Arthur Janice is uh, violent and we want to know where his hair is and UC Health needs to step up and they need to tell us what the hell happened. Yeah. And I just want to point out he was in both the hospital and briefly in a nursing home. He's he had blood clots in his abdominal area. He's been in he's been hospitalized since early September. And Mr. Janice has difficulty speaking. So they're not Mm -hmm. sure if he knows who did it or not. The only thing that they know from what I read is that there was no medical reason to cut his hair off. And that's where it gets kind of dark to me. Yeah, it was just abdominal pains, abdominal surgery, blood clots. So nothing that would require them to cut off his braids whatsoever. One of the things I think it's important for um, people to understand, your listeners out there, is that for, for many Native American tribes and nations, hair is sacred. And not only is it sacred, but it is believed to be a part of our spirit. And so it is It is never to be touched. People, you have to actually, um, people have to give permission for you to touch their hair. Um, so it's it's part of our spirit. It's part of our strength. And so yeah. um, it's seen as a symbol of our personal identity in, in our spirits. And it's, it's just heartbreaking. One of the first things they did for children who went to the residential schools was to cut their hair. That's right. And there's scenes in um, the Harrison Ford 1923 where they're cutting the hair, yeah. and that's very painful for people. And so, you know, to hear about this this warrior, Ogichida warrior in my language, elder, having his hair cut, you know, non-consensually, it's very upsetting. And um, just we talk about you know, trauma-informed, and so if, if people who work at the hospital had an understanding for for indigenous people that hair is extremely sacred and important then that should not have have happened and what troubles me is maybe they did know maybe they did know and that's why it's gone i'm sorry simon go ahead well yeah so there's only two reasons why you we would cut our hair one by choice if we want to do it we'll cut it we can cut it off and put a mohawk it depends on what we're doing also in mourning when we're in mourning, that's where we cut our hair. And then also, we believe, and this is, uh, I, I don't know if this is also usually, but for the Oglala Lakota, who uh, I am and Arthur Janice is, our memory is in our hair. So the longer the hair, yes. the longer the memory. That's and true I love, for us as I well. love that. I love that. Yeah. Um, you know, before we get to our, our break, and I want to talk about a lot of other things, including fry bread, uh, uh, Simon, but uh, let's go to the oh, phones yeah. and get a caller or two in because uh, people have been very, very, people have really liked what y'all do. And Mike in Michigan is on the line. Mike, thank you for your patience on hold. You're on Sirius XM with Simon and Julie. Welcome. Thank you, John, for taking my call. I, I'm really, really taken by this because uh, I respect the American Indians and uh I'm in a teepee right now, okay, <laughs> that I made myself uh, 
I, I honor the Indians, I believe, by doing it. But I had a full-blood Cher- Cherokee come to a guy by the name of Bear come to my teepee and, and uh, critique it. And uh, <laughs> then I did a few things wrong. He told me what to do right, and I, I fixed it. And uh, and it, it's a great, you know. But uh, but anyway, awesome. I just want to. What what is your what is your nation, Mike? My nation, I. I'm Irish American. I'm a German Irish. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm sorry. I thought you were native as well. My, my apologies. Go ahead. No, I, I, I'm less Indian than the, you know, uh, the senator. But uh, okay. But anyway, uh, Mike, if I can just, if I could just say, that, you know, I, I appreciate that you are wanting to learn about Native Americans and honoring, you know, our, our traditions and, you know, building a teepee. I've been a part of building teepees and the fact that you've had someone give you the teachings, you'll find any, any listener out there, go to a, a ceremony or a celebration or a powwow and speak to people there. They're happy to share happy to share our yeah. culture, happy to have knowledge, you know, exchanged. And so g- good for you, Michael. I'm glad that you phoned in tonight, tonight as well. Julie, Julie, you're to... a, I asked if Julie was an Ojibwe. And, uh, yes, Ojibwe. Her, her tribe. On this side of the border, they say Chippewa, which is the mm, same Hawaii. nation. That's right. The French yeah. couldn't. The French couldn't pronounce Ojibwe, so Ojibwe, Ojibwe, Chippewa. And it became Chippewa. Chippewa. Got it. Happened to American Indians. I studied about the Chief Tecumseh, Shawnee, and uh, his life, and what an amazing life he had. Yeah. And uh, he had the right idea, trying to join the tribes against us. Okay, white folks. You know, like he learned from. Uh, the colonies, he said, well, the colonies joined together and fought the British. So bring the tribes together and fight the whites. And hmm. it, it almost worked, ex- except uh, his brother screwed up and uh, said that the bullets could go right through us. He thought he was the prophet. But I see. And it, it, it hmm. comes to uh, amazing, amazing man. And it is, they use, they've got a, a statue. It's not really Tecumseh's statue at Annapolis. But it's got his name on it, okay? Who is the statue uh, of with his name on it? Uh, I forget the name of the chief, but it's not Tecumseh. Okay. But Tecumseh used to work. Interesting. Him. But anyway. Yeah, never knew that. They use battle tactics. They honor him because of his battle tactics and everything. You know what's interesting yeah. really quickly? If I could jump here talking about please, battle. Please, please, please. Yeah, when we, were, when we were kids growing up, it was uh, one of my elders pulled me aside and he said, do you know why the military fights the way they do today? And I said, you mean like the Army, Marines? And I said, yeah. And I said, why? And he goes, because they had to fight us. And I <laughs> was like, what do you mean? And he goes, all right, remember, he goes, think of it this way. Remember when white people came here? How did they fight? They fought in columns. And what did they do? They There would be a drum boy. And then somebody would be carrying a standard or a flag. And that's not how we fought. So they had to adjust the way they fought because of how we did. We would hide behind a tree. We'd be in a bush. Yep. And they would be standing in columns. So we would just take them down. And then they finally learned, like, holy shit, these Indians don't fight like we do. I think we need to get behind trees. We got to get behind the bushes. And so we don't get a lot of credit for the way the, mil- the United States military learned how to fight was because we were kicking their ass because all they would do is drum in, stand in a column, and we just took them down. Right on. <laughs> well, they, uh, they used his tactics, uh, 
Tecumseh's tactics because he joined with the British in the War of 1812, and they took Fort Detroit, okay, huh. using what, what Tecumseh taught him. And so uh, it's rarely pronounced Tecumseh. That's right. But, uh, Mike, thank you very much for the call, man. we got to hit a break, but I thank you very much for, uh, for calling and joining us. we got to take a quick one. We'll be back in just a moment with more. Simon and Julie, can you stick around? Because I have a lot of things I want to ask you about as the token dumb white person in the segment. We'll be right back. This is Progress. I'm John Fiegel saying this is Progress. We are joined once again by Simon Moya-Smith and Julie Franchella and taking your calls at 866-997-GRIT. Can I just say something? Mark Wayne Mullen is an enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation. <laughs> Do I have to oh, yeah. reconcile this now? Jesus. Yeah, yeah, he's a bro. He's a bro. That he's no, he's not bro. one of us in the sense. Yeah, no. he he acts like a bro, and you know. And as a matter of fact, on Reddit today, he, people were sharing that image he, when he was caught on camera cowering. You know, during the January sixth attack, he was like hiding. So all of a yep. sudden, he we're supposed to see he's trying to rewrite himself as a exactly. tough guy, as a badass. Exactly. While he was hiding from the people that he claimed to support. Well, he's Mr. Mixed Martial Arts guy who is hiding from the people he supports. Yeah, I mean, just just oh, yeah. no, yeah. yeah. And he hides from natives. He hides from us journalists for native journalists from hardcore interviews, especially about oil and gas. He won't respond yeah. to any of our requests oh, yeah. for a conversation. Well, that's the that thing. Like when when only a few individuals from a minority group are visible, like in high profile positions, like they gotta. In in Indian countries, it's like if you're out there in the world and people know who you are and they know that you're indigenous, you have to step up. You have to be above. And that's, you know, that's just yeah. kind of because if there's only a few of us you know, out there that people see, you will represent all natives because, exactly. as we know, only 25 yeah. percent of people out there actually know a Native American. And that's a right. statistic. So now you're right. Yeah. He, anyway. Regardless, I mean. Even though he's Cherokee, and even though uh, LaDonna Harris is Pueblo, everybody, they're just going to go in Indian. So all of us, no matter what, we know we're Oglala, we know that we're Diné, we know that we're Ojibwe, we know. But for the majority of American citizens, and in Canada, they just go, oh, in Indian. And so we become kind of like this poster child of the do's and don'ts. So we're supposed to watch our P's and Q's. In his case, he's not, screw that guy, man. He's he's not, I can, he may be indigenous by blood, but he's not indigenous by being in the community. You're exactly right. And he goes and threatens to beat up a teamster on C-SPAN. No one's saying, well, that's just how white males are. No one's saying that about him. It's just the double standard's (laughs) disgusting. Uh, Hey, let me get another caller really quick, because before I ask you about the fry bread, uh, Kathleen in Kansas, thank you for waiting on hold. You're on Sirius XM with Simon Moya-Smith and Julie Franchella. Hello, Kathleen. Hi. Hi. Good evening. And thank you for taking my call. I just want to throw out there that there is a book called Great American Speeches by Native Americans, and it is 82 speeches by indigenous leaders over the five centuries of interacting with uh, European settlers oh, wow. and the European wave. It is uh, it's a source of origin information, which I think is terribly important because so much of what we hear is filtered through one's experience. But I would encourage your two guests to take a look at this book and and anybody who's listening who wants to get down to the origins 
of how Native Americans, um, the indigenous population, addressed their oppressors in in Mm -hmm. so many ways. And that if you take what's going on today and compare it to these 82 um, speeches and letters, we have not gotten very far at all. Tell us the name of the you book know, one more interesting. time. Oh, go ahead, Simon. Yeah. Well, ahead, I would Simon. be curious ahead, how they were translated. Yeah, I'd be curious how they're translated because English and many indigenous languages do not directly translate. There are many mm. words that we have that is not in the white language, and there are, language, there are words in the English language that we don't have. Something So, for example, something as simple as goodbye. We don't have that word. We don't have the word goodbye because we're either going to see you in this life or the next. We don't have the word for please, uh, because if you're asking for something, you're already asking for it humbly. So I would just be really curious. I mean, I mean, I'm not, you know, dogging the book. I'm just saying when it especially if we're going back five centuries, how that was Mm -hmm. translated and, you know, what what wisdom is in there that's fact and what was kind of like, well, just fill it in right here. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I'd be very curious to check out some of the the speeches and and uh, and and research how accurate they are. Can, Can you tell us the name of the book one more time? Sure. It's Great Speeches by Native Americans, and it's edited by Bob, I think it's Blaisdell is uh, the pronunciation of his name. Where I got this book was from the Southwestern Indian Foundation, and they do have a catalog called SouthwesternIndianFoundation.com, I believe it is. You can look it up. They're out of Gallup, New Mexico. Um, you enjoyed you. the book? Like you learned a lot from it. This book? Yes, I did. Where I like to come from is getting as close to the origin of something as possibly can, and of course through filters and all that. But if we understand our origins, I think it explains a lot as to how we address each other, how we care for each other, and yes. how we view for each other. And if in the uh, Caucasian culture, the white culture, if we do not go back to our origins and find out that the violence that is here in the United States was imported with the the, um, original settlers way back when, and we haven't healed from it yet. All we did was import it, and then we bastardized it to meet whatever... The situation was it's in front true. of us from the beginning. And unless we become completely honest with ourselves, yep. no growth, no change will happen. I don't care all I don't care how you look at anything. You nailed else, it. But you if nailed you it. do not go back to your origin and are honest with yourself about it, then healing can happen. But until that happens, uh uh-uh. uh. That's why I was so interested in this book. And and uh Simon, I I do agree with you that there the beauty of an individual culture is its language and its, yeah. its interactions oh, yeah. with each other. But somehow we have to cross those bridges. Kathleen, oh, yeah, I love absolutely. This call. And, yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. The, 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 and yet they called us savages. They called us savages. They imported that level of violence. And yet exactly they were like right. savages. Like, look what you guys are doing. Yep, the ethnic well, cleansing. You know, you know you know what is so horrible? It just blows my mind. My husband's family um, immigrated to upstate New York in 1834, and they would have died had it not been for the Oneida, because they came in the fall, mm-hmm. which is really a stupid time to come. Mm-hmm. And so the Oneida at that time would go south for the winter, but they had these long 
uh, longhouses that mm-hmm. were up in They're there. The longhouse the people. Yeah. Allowed, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the Oneida allowed my husband's ancestors to stay in that in in those uh, facilities during the winter. And then they came back in early March and showed them how to take uh, sap from the maple tree and turn it into maple syrup, which also mm-hmm. helped save them from starving. And mm-hmm. his family's made maple syrup since then. But had it not been for the Oneida, they wouldn't have made it. That's right. Yeah. That's, That's right. Amazing. Thank so you so much for right the call, about- Kathleen. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm thank sorry. you. No, it's just uh, we're talking about language and how you know that's one of the 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 things I'm working on a language project with uh, Jean Braverock, who's Blackfoot, and we were just talking about how there's so much that is lost when the language is lost because, as Simon was saying, like there's words that we don't have. Another one is um, "you're welcome." Um, mm. We don't have a word for "you're welcome" because it's built into our philosophy. You know that that you know it will be given back to you, whatever it was that was done. Uh, you know that's just built in, and things like um, and I was talking to Simon about this. The word you know tree. You know it's it's an inanimate object, tree in English, but in Blackfoot it's mitsis, in Ojibwe it's mitik, and in Cree it's mystic, and all of those translate to it reaches up, mm. meaning that. It is an alive, animate being. It is our relative. And so when you lose the language, you know, you lose that philosophy and perspective that everything, we're related to everything, including the trees and nature, Mother Nature. And so that's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to, to you know, salvage and save our language. Guys, we're getting Ooh. so many calls for this segment tonight. I'd like to take one more call. Uh, David in Santa Fe, welcome. You're on with Simon and Julie. Okay. Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah, like uh, Lakota is the standing people. Nawakan, Nawajin, Nawajin standing. And they're reaching up and they're praying like that opening to the universe. I really appreciate the show. I got uh, surgery two days ago, John. Yeah. I I don't want to talk long. I just wanted to check in because I'm enjoying the show so much. And they didn't cut my hair off. Hey, Hey. thank God. Right on. I'm Thank Jeff. God. You're you're Lakota, right? I'm I'm Sichangu Lakota. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're Sichangu. You're yeah, all right. I'm Oglala and I'm in Santa Fe. Yeah, I know. We're neighbors. I know. Oh man. I lived in Santa Fe for twenty years. And I, I just recently okay. moved to Lake Tahoe. Yeah, this is David in Santa Fe. I remember I, I listened is. to you and I and I referenced you and I appreciate you and I hope that you're feeling better. Uh, from your surgery, yeah, and thank re- you so much for taking time out of your healing to call uh, yeah. to talk to John and myself and Simon. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think anybody will understand what I'm saying, but you will. Shante, where's the Yanapetcha Yuzu Yolo? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, just re- uh, just remember all my relatives that we are all related. Metakuyasin and Metakuyasin. So, oh, Metakuyasin. We're all related, John. Right on. And I'll man. let you guys go for now, and uh, I'll call in again next week. I think I'll be in a little better shape. So grateful to you. Thank you. Please get back to your Don't healing, shot. and thanks for weighing in. But, Simon, I've only got you for two minutes left. I've got to ask you about fry bread. I'm a dumb white person. I've never really understood it. You did a great piece for NBC News called Native American Fry Bread is the Food of Our Oppression. It's also delicious, so we're mm-hmm. reclaiming it. I know you don't write the headlines, but tell me, what what is fry bread, and why is it a symbol of resilience? 
if your listeners remember, um, reservations were first established. A lot of them were first established as prison camps. Mine is prison camp three three four. So this was around. This was kind of after what they call Indian Wars. Um, so what they did was they sent commodity food boxes, and it was terrible. It was like a lot of lard and sugars and flours, um. and so and we didn't want to starve. So what we did was we made fry bread. We would make the dough and we would dip it into the oil that came into the box, and there you have it. So it's similar. It's kind of like our our uh, soul food, kind of like how ribs came to be in the South during slavery, and mm. they would throw the bone with the least meat. To the uh, African families, and it was kind of that's what that's where it came from. So we didn't have fry bread before white people came here, before the prison camps that we now call reservations. Wow. Yeah, one of the one of the um, I think important things to remember is that as we were being pushed onto these, you know, reservations in the United States and reserves in Canada, you know, that our our food supplies and food sources, our natural food sources were disappearing. So the American buffalo, the buffalo was disappearing. And so in Canada, especially, we became very um, much reliant on these food rations from the government. So in Canada, the government actually withheld the food rations to be able to coerce nations into signing these treaties, which they don't honor anyway, but they coerce right. them into signing these treaties. And so they use starvation as a way to get populations to sign these treaties. And so fried That's bread is, is a symbol of our survival and resistance and ability to adapt. Julie, how do our listeners how do our listeners follow you, Julie, and keep up with all your work? Uh, Julie Franchella at, uh, on Twitter and Instagram and juliefranchella.com. I have a website. Thank you. And that's where we can see your painting, right? Your work is yeah, there. Yeah, my your paintings. Take, right take on. It, take a look. S Simon Moya Smith, how do we follow you and keep up with all your many doings? Well, you two convinced me to get back on Twitter or X or whatever they're calling it. It's so Twitter. You can find me there. <laughs> you can find me there at Simon Moya Smith and on Instagram at Simon Said Take a Pick. Guys, I'll miss you next week. We'll be off for the Thanksgiving holiday, but thank you for classing up our show. I can't wait for our next segment. This is Sirius XM. I'm John Fugel saying peace. Peace.